in Kabul in March 2006, an Afghan smuggler of the Norzai tribe, Shin Norzai, accompanied 15 of his friends to a home in Kabul to celebrate Nauru's, a holiday marking the first day of spring. Shin and his comrades were invited to Kabul at the request of Muhammad Lala, Shin's friend and a border police officer. The group of 16 men, including Shin Norzai, sat down to dinner with the other people gathered for the celebration. For Shin and his friends, the dinner was pleasant, and afterward, they would complete their journey to the northern city of Mazari Sharif with Muhammad Lala. They were set to leave the next day, but after dinner, Muhammad invited the group to another party at his friend's house in Kabul. They would go, have dinner and some form of entertainment, and then leave for Mazari Sharif the next day. Before they left to go to the other party, one of Shin's friends, also present at Muhammad house, asked Shin to go with him to Mazari Sharif, rather than go with Muhammad. Shin declined, and the sixteen of them left with Muhammad Lala to attend that other party. None of them would ever make it to Mazari Sharif. Welcome back to Green and White. If you listen to episode 5, I discussed the Spin Boldak region of Kandahar province. Spin Boldak is a district in eastern Kandahar that borders Pakistan. Lieutenant General Abdul Razak, the provincial chief of police for Kandahar province, is originally from Spin Boldak and maintains a home there. In episode 5, I discussed Razak's origins and how he rose up from the ranks by fighting the Taliban and making friends in high places, including Kandahar power broker Golaga Shirzai and former Afghan president Hamid Karzai. I talked about Razak's hatred for the Taliban, particularly Talibs belonging to the Norzai tribe who murdered his family members. I will not recap too much of that information in this episode, so if you want all the details, check out episode 5. It's helpful, but not required for this one. Spin Boldak is a border district, and its proximity to Pakistan makes the district important if you want to buy and sell goods between Pakistan and Afghanistan. It is also home to one of only two economic points of entry into Afghanistan from Pakistan. That point of entry is called the Chaman Gate, if you're talking about the Pakistan side, or the Wesh Gate on the Afghan side. General Razak leads the Afghan border police in Kandahar, just one of many subsets of the Afghan police force. Before he was the senior security official, the provincial chief of police, Razak was a border police commander who oversaw border operations at Spinboldak's border crossing. In fact, when Hamid Karzai promoted him to lieutenant general and made him the provincial chief of police, Razak said he would only take the job if he could retain control of border operations. So, something isn't on the level here. No one takes a promotion and insists that they keep the responsibilities of their old job. So, why would Razak want to maintain control of the border crossing? If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you've already figured it out. But if you're listening for the first time and are still seeing Afghanistan through Western eyes, let me spell it out for you. Afghan government officials don't get rich serving the people of Afghanistan. General Razak has more wealth than we could ever account for. But he didn't earn it by serving in the Afghan army and police force. You see, General Razak is an Achiksai Pashtun, 
and his tribe has a history of smuggling. The Achiksais are like the Han Solos of eastern Afghanistan. They know all the routes across the border, and they know all the routes through the mountains, and they can move men, weapons, drugs, and whatever else you could want. And if the Achiksais are the Han Solos of eastern Afghanistan, the Norzai tribe are like the Greedos. And Spin Boldock is Mosaisley Cantina, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. So the Achiksai and the Norzai tribes competed for control of the smuggling routes in Spin Boldock. When the Taliban was in power, the Norzai Taliban were given control of those routes by the Taliban government. And when the Taliban fell, the Norzais lost much of their control. When Razik was put in charge of the border police, the Achiksai were more than happy to have one of their own in charge of the border crossing. For Razik, control of the gate meant he could amass a fortune through extortion and smuggling. Afghan and Pakistani truckers would pay off Razik and his men to avoid harassment at the gate. Rather than waiting in a massive line to get into Afghanistan, truckers and vehicles who were in with Razik could skip the line and be searched in a special area. A bribe here and a bribe there could mean an RPG here or a truck full of opium there. And if thousands of people cross every single day, Razik could exert power over every single vehicle. So, with Razik in charge, things are looking good for the Achiksai's tribe. Razik is the head of the tribe, and he uses that money to help his fellow tribe members, like any tribal elder should do. But Razik doesn't just use his fortune to help his own tribe. He uses the money to help the Afghan people, and the Afghan government. People have told stories of Razik walking through towns with a briefcase full of cash, and handing out enough money to the widows of his men they would, that they would never want for anything. And in 2016, the government wanted to construct new checkpoints along the Kandahar-Aruzgan Highway. Listeners of this podcast are quite familiar with that highway, but things were moving slowly. So Razak shows up with truckloads of building materials and oversees the construction using his own cash. And Razak ensures his men receive the best training. His soldiers earned prestige for their fighting ability compared with the rest of the poorly trained Afghan forces. Like warlord Madiullah Khan from episode 3, Razak ensures his men are well paid and well equipped and that if they die in service to him, their families are taken care of. All of these things combined with the fact that Kandahar province is safer now than under any other provincial chief of police means that people respect Razak. Except, of course, for Razak's old enemies, the Nurzai Taliban of Spin Bulldog. While all of this sounds noble, I can assure you that that safety comes at a cost, and that the truth will make you uncomfortable. In 2013, a United Nations report on human rights said 81 people had disappeared in the custody of Kandahar police the past year. Human Rights Watch an American international non-governmental organization, laid out some of the things detained Afghans would endure under the Kandahar police force. Doctors at a hospital in Kandahar told Human Rights Watch that two men under their care had been tortured by the Kandahar police by, quote, the application of power drills to their heads. Other incidents involve detained people disappearing. Other people are electrocuted. Some are bound up and beaten. Some people even lose their eyes. 
And in 2014, Razak told Afghan media that he would no longer be taking prisoners. At the time, Razak was exasperated that Talibs were taken into custody and then released. He said the justice system was corrupt, which is certainly an interesting statement coming from General Razak. The international community was, of course, appalled when Razak said he would execute insurgents he captured rather than detain them. There were stories of Razak ordering captured Talibs to walk over their own minds in a sick form of revenge and extrajudicial executions. Razak's police force has also been accused of detaining and torturing minors. Human Rights Watch lists one incident where a police commander captured a local man's son, used him as a sex slave, and then dumped his body in front of his father's house, claiming he died in a shootout with the Taliban. The local Afghan man was told not to pursue the matter because the police were involved. In addition to capturing and torturing minors, it is said that child soldiers are in the ranks of the Afghan army and police forces and that the government is not interested in preventing this. Back in 2006, Shin Norzai and his 15 friends accompanied Muhammad Lala to another party to celebrate Nauru's. At that party, all 16 men were drugged, tied up, and loaded into the back of trucks. According to the Atlantic article on the incident, Razak, Muhammad Lala, and their men drove their captives in police land cruisers to spin Bulldog. They were forced to stand in a dry riverbed, and the Kandahar police emptied automatic rifles into them at close range. There are graphic photos of the bodies taken after locals found them the next day. Razak attempted to push the story that these were Talibs killed in a fight with police and the Afghan media bought that story. Just across the border in Pakistan, people were outraged. Many of the men killed in this massacre were from Pakistan and their families wanted answers. Not buying the official story, an investigation was opened in Afghanistan. Razak refused to talk to the investigators and hid out at his friend and then Kandahar governor, Asadullah Khalid's house. And even though the investigation confirmed the men had been drugged and executed, no charges were ever filed against Razak or Muhammad Lala. Razak went on to become the police chief of Kandahar, and Lala became a member of parliament. At least one of those killed in the massacre was a minor. Asadullah Khalid, the former governor of Kandahar, eventually became the head of the Afghan intelligence agency known as the National Directorate of Security. There are numerous accusations against Khalid, including one instance where he was alleged to have lured a group of several young women to his residence while governor of Ghazni. After refusing to have sex with Khalid and his men, they were raped. Razak always accused Shin Norzai of killing his brother, and Shin's death at Razak's hands is not surprising in a culture where revenge is required. Shin was a smuggler, and it's likely that some of the other 15 men were also smugglers. But it's very unlikely they were all smugglers, and it's even more unlikely that they had ties to the Taliban or other insurgent groups. And the worst part of all of this is that no one seems to care. Human Rights Watch has a whole list of horrific accusations and stories regarding Razak and many, many other Afghan government officials. Razak has only accumulated more power, 
and keeps Kandahar secure using force and likely nefarious connections. He is a good general, at least by Afghan standards, and his men are good fighters, again, by Afghan standards. Because of these two things, the U.S. government relies on him and gets him the things he needs. We pay his salary. The United States and other coalition nations fund Afghanistan and her security forces. Every U.S. citizen pays taxes, and a portion of your money goes to fund men like Razak and Asadullah Khalid and Mahdiullah Khan and the whole lot of these official warlords. And you have to ask yourself, are we seeing positive results? The Taliban seem to be gaining more control every year, and now General Nicholson is asking President Trump for more troops for Afghanistan. There was a surge before, and it didn't fix anything because, at its core, the entire government of Afghanistan is rotten and overrun with warlords and drug smugglers who bend the knee to the United States in exchange for money and power so they can turn around and commit horrific acts of violence on innocent people. And when the United States leaves, they will fight among themselves until a group, like the Taliban, comes along and uses force to keep everyone in line. Or, if another nation takes up residence in the so-called graveyard of empires that Afghanistan is, they will play the same game. And it's no wonder the Taliban are able to garner support among segments of the population. It happened when they rose to power in the 1990s. Similar stories of kids being kidnapped by warlords and used as sex slaves are the same stories you hear from these government officials today. And if these men are our allies, what does that say about America? You can find pictures online of General Nicholson, commander of the Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan, smiling after shaking hands with General Razak. You can find another picture of Lieutenant General Joseph Anderson, the former commander of the International Security Assistance Force known as ISAF, with his arm around Razak's neck while they both smile and laugh. In 2014, Galaga Shurzai, the man for whom Razak fought against the Taliban, was quoted in the New York Times as, Razak is the god, the prophet, the governor, and the president here in Kandahar. He's the king. Thanks so much for listening to episode 6 of Green and White. I know it's been a couple of months since I put out an episode, but I stay busy with nursing school and a full-time job. I don't get paid for this podcast. All of my information comes from open-source news articles or reports that can be found on the internet. The Afghan war, the forgotten war, is important to me and something no one talks about. The only time Afghanistan can share a front page with Donald Trump is when some awful terrorist attack occurs and it seems like the death toll needs to be at least in the double digits in order to merit appearing on the news. It's just sad. There is so much more to this war that no one is aware of, and that's the whole goal of this podcast and why I write these episodes. I just want people to be aware that this war is going on, and it affects the lives of innocent people half a world away every single day. One more thing. Razak's troops were trained by a few different private companies, DynCorp and Z, spelled X-E, formerly Blackwater, were two of the most notorious. And even though it seems like ages ago that Blackwater was in the news for terrible violations in Iraq, they're still around, just under a different name, Academy, spelled with an I at the end. Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, is Betsy Devos, 
the U.S. Secretary of Education's brother. DynCorp, another private company operating in Afghanistan, is just as terrible. In the 1990s, DynCorp employees in Bosnia were accused of having sex with underage girls and selling them to each other as sex slaves. People were forced to resign, but no one was ever prosecuted. In Afghanistan in 2009, DynCorp employees paid a 17-year-old boy to entertain them as a bachabazi, a sort of sex performer in kunduz. A WikiLeaks cable showed that Hani Fatmar, the Minister of the Interior in Afghanistan, asked the U.S. ambassador to cover up the incident and the release of a video. No one has been charged, and today DynCorp still has contracts in Afghanistan with the U.S. government.